Welcome to Profiles. I'm George Walker, and our guest is Indiana Distinguished Professor Emeritus Harvey Phillips. Harvey Phillips has been recognized as the Paganini of the tuba, a master teacher, and an astute organizer and businessman. Harvey, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, George. You've been recognized the world over as a, if you will, a true poet of the tuba with great technique coupled with a sensitive musical expression. But while there are little violins and there are piano pieces written for small hands, the tuba isn't an instrument that a small person can handle. What was your musical path to the instrument? I grew up in the Ozark Mountains of Missouri, a little county called Lawrence County, and I was born on December 2nd, 1929, so I didn't miss a day of the Depression. My dad had a great reputation as a good farmer and as a good carpenter and a good cabinet maker, and uh, we became tenant farmers. By the time I was 10 years old, I lived in nine houses. That went on until we moved to Marionville, Missouri, and I started school there, and that's where I graduated. My uh, music teacher in Marionville was a retired circus bandmaster named uh, Homer Lee. From the from the circus? Yes. Uh-huh. And uh, I had just graduated in June of that year, 47, mm-hmm. and uh, we were putting up hay. I was in a loft stacking the hay, and two gentlemen were throwing it up into the, the loft. I saw him pull up in his 1940 Ford and pulled up to the gate, and he got out waving a yellow piece of paper and yelling, Harvey, Harvey, you got a job with King Brothers Circus. So I left about two days after that and went to Waterbury, Connecticut, and joined King Brothers Circus and stayed with them for nine weeks. Then I went to the University of Missouri, but I only stayed one semester because right after the second semester had begun, I received a telegram from the great circus bandmaster Merle Evans to join his band, the Ringing Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus Band, which I did. And I traveled with them for two and a half years. And in the course of that, I met William Bell in New York. Mm-hmm. He was hired, as a matter of fact, as in one of the other tubas. So my introduction to him was sitting on a stand performing with him. And he invited me to New York and arranged a four-year scholarship at the Juilliard School for me. So in uh, September of 1950, I went to New York and stayed. Let's let's back up just a little bit. Uh, you say that really uh, that you didn't miss a day of the Depression and that your family had a very hard time. Was there music in your home? Oh, yes. My father was a, also a wonderful barn dance fiddle player. And my mother played piano. And uh, her brothers played mandolin and guitar and, and the other string instruments. So we would uh, sometimes have a family musicale with a big dishpan full of popcorn balls and then buttered popcorn and then apples from the cellar and cider. And and uh, it was a happy, happy time. It was a wonderful growing up time, I think. We're talking with Harvey Phillips about uh, his musical career. So you've got gotten me to 10 years old now, but then we jumped. And I'm still curious about what happened, uh, uh, how you got from sitting around with the family and having a popcorn ball to that big instrument. Oh, well, the tuba. Well, we had, uh, in 1941, in December 7th, uh, we entered the war by invitation of the Japanese. And uh, the one young man who played the 
sousaphone in our high school band. And the high school band owned two instruments only. They owned a bass drum and they owned a sousaphone. So I would take my dad's violin to school and try to fit into the band. Well, you know that, how that must have sounded. Uh, so when all the young men in 17, 18 were going away and joining the service because they knew they were going to be drafted anyway, Mm-hmm. The young man who played the tuba, the sousaphone, uh, joined the Navy. And the music teacher came by and said, Harvey, how would you like to play the, the bass horn? She didn't even call it a tuba or a sousaphone. She said, how would you like to play the bass horn? And I just flipped out because I had an instrument. And my folks couldn't buy one, but the school had it and it was furnishing an instrument for me. I didn't have to rent it even. So uh, that became my constant companion from that time on. Had before that, had you thought to yourself in your in your dreams, gee whiz, you know, I'd really like to play the tuba, or did you have other musical thoughts? No, I didn't think about the tuba. I thought about the cornet and uh, the sexier brass instruments. The tuba and I think and I, I think were were made for each other because I, after that first day with the instrument, I wouldn't think of playing anything else. Was your was the music teacher able to help you much with the tuba? Well, he was a cornet player, a brass mm-hmm. player, and uh, as I said, a former circus bandmaster. So, what would we play in our high school band? We played the music he knew. So we played circus music, uh, which is a wealth. You know, the the thing that di- distinguishes an American circus from a European circus is in Europe they play things from light opera and and. Uh, popular songs of the day. In the United States, we had composers who were born on the circus, who lived circus, who, when they wrote, you know, the Royal Decree March, which is for the elephants, and you, it's just in the temple of the elephants, you would see the elephants walking, and it was wonderful. Uh, when they wrote for the big lions and their cats, you could smell them through the music. It was just wonderful experience for me. And uh, we played, for example, Ride the Valkyrie to bring out the High Wire Act or the Trapeze Act. Then we'd give a chord and they'd take a bow and then they'd, they'd have to climb up to their equipment. Mm-hmm. So we'd play some ascension music. And get them up there and then watch their da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
Oh, yes. Oh, sure. And then later on, I became uh, personnel manager for Igor Stravinsky. Composer and longtime friend Alec Wilder wrote a set of pieces for a proposed children's piece about an imaginary elephant named Effie. Here's Harvey Phillips with Bernie Layton playing Effie Chases a Monkey, Effie Falls in Love, and Effie Takes a Dancing Lesson. Our guest on Profile, Harvey Phillips, with pianist Bernie Layton, playing music from the Effie Suite by Alec Wilder. So we've talked a little bit about your, your early work, and you mentioned that, uh, that you actually had uh, gotten a chance really out of high school to play with King Brothers and then gone to college and uh, continued on with uh, that until uh, Ringling Brothers called. Now, when you went to work with Ringling... Uh, how many tuba players were there in their band? Two. So there was you and... Johnny Evans, who was a former Sousa band member. Most of the circus band I worked with were ex-Sousa musicians. So you're, you, you really are just one generation after John Philip Sousa. Yes, he passed away in 1932. Mm-hmm. Did these, these musicians uh, look back fondly to the Sousa years? Oh, they did indeed, and of course, one of their happiest memories was when William Bell was with the Sousa Band, and William Bell at that time was with the New York Philharmonic. Uh, his He had a spectacular career. When he was 18 years old, he had already gained enough reputation as a tuba player to have John Philip Sousa himself summon him to the Sousa Band as principal tuba, and then he left the Sousa Band. That was in 1921. He left the Sousa Band for the Cincinnati Symphony with uh, Fritz Reiner uh, in 1924, and he stayed there until 1937 when he got a telegram from uh, Arturo Toscanini. He was the third musician Toscanini hired for his orchestra. Wow. He hired his concertmaster, Mishikov, uh, his oboe player, and his tubas. Now, as you were working at Ringling Brothers, uh, first with Johnny Evans and then with, with William Bell, and you got to know him, uh, this was your connection really to New York. Well, I, uh, I more of uh, was an apprentice than a student because I was playing with Johnny Evans six hours a day. And the way we did it was we would both play the introduction of a march or a gallop or a waltz. Then he would play the first strain. Then I would repeat it. And he'd play the next strain, and I would repeat it. And he was an impeccable tuba player, a wonderful musician. So uh, I w- it was quite a challenge to throw at me at that early age. There you were, uh, really, in, in the big time under the big top. That's right. That's right. 
Now, William Bell came in uh, when Evans left for a while and played some. And at the same time, uh, Bell uh, was very, very busy. So there were a number of other tuba players you got to meet and work with. Well, uh, yes, uh, inf- influences and help for me when I first got to New York as, as freelance player. Uh, Joan Novotny, who was then with the NBC Symphony, Abe Torshinsky, who was with the Philadelphia Orchestra. In fact, I purchased my first double C tuba, orchestral tuba, from Abe Torshinsky. And uh, old Philip Cadway, a wonderful freelance player in New York, uh, they all kind of embraced me when I when I got to New York. I had no, there wasn't a jealous bone in anybody's body, and we we got along great from the very beginning. So William Bell had gotten you a scholarship to go to Juilliard. Yes. To to study there, what was the focus of your study at Juilliard? Orchestrally mostly, but I spent quite a bit of time in the dean's office, and in. Uh, one of one of the conductors at Juilliard was um, Frederick Prausnitz, and he was assistant dean. And sometimes I would have to miss a rehearsal because I was recording. And uh, so he'd call me in his office and he'd tell me, uh, "I, you know, it's not right to miss rehearsals." And I said, "But they were doing Beethoven and Mozart." There's no tuba in Beethoven or Mozart. He says, well, you can learn a lot about music listening to Beethoven and Mozart. And I said, well, I'll grant you that, Dr. Prosnitz, but if I want to do that, I'll go down and listen to the New York Philharmonic or the NBC Symphony. So later, when I went to New England with Gunther Schuller, who is the conductor of the orchestra but Frederick Prosnitz? <laughs> so he came to Gunther's office and, for some business, and Gunther said... Well, Fred, have you met my vice president, Harvey Phillips? He turned around and turned white, and I said, your shoe's on the other foot now, Fred. Oh, <laughs> gee whiz. So now now he was in your office. Yeah. We were in the president's office, in the right. office. But right. My office is next door. Now, as, as you were working in New York and having the opportunity to play a variety of things, um, how did this contribute to your development as an instrumentalist and, uh, and your view of the music? I have always considered music to be a language. It's a means of communicating. You communicate happiness, you can communicate sadness, you can communicate joy. So I consider music to be one language, mm-hmm. but with many dialects. For example, if you had a scale written on a blackboard of staff, and it said Mozart, and that scale was written by Mozart, you'd, you'd approach it a certain way. If it said it was written by Bach, you'd approach it another way. What if it says it's written by Scott Joplin or Duke Ellington or Thelonious Monk? Then you're going to think about that scale differently each time because you're going to use a different dialect to express the thought of that scale. Here's Harvey Phillips with flutist Andrew Loya to play the first of Bach's two-part inventions. ¶¶ 
We're talking with tuba player Harvey Phillips, tuba player, a teacher, entrepreneur, and you're mentioning that there are, that there are different languages. Uh, until now, you've mentioned circus music and you've mentioned some orchestral music. What other sorts of things were you playing in New York? Well, as I say uh, earlier, when I would go in Prasnit's office, uh, I would just tell him, uh, Dr. Prasnit, the reason I missed the orchestra rehearsal was because I was recording with Stokowski on RCA Victor. Isn't that what I'm training for? He said, if you really mind yourself when you're at the Juilliard School and attend all your classes, uh, he said, someday maybe you'll have an orchestra position. I said, well, I was recording with Stokowski. Isn't that what I'm training for? He apparently had a different vision than you did. <laughs> well, he was trying to do his job, and uh, I realized that. And So I, I spent four years at Juilliard. In addition to playing with uh, the orchestras in New York, were you also taking other sorts of gigs? Oh, I did lots of jingles. I did lots of uh, Dixieland recordings. There are a lot of... Uh, recordings with uh, Gleason. I did the Gleason show. I did the Voice of Firestone. I did the Bell Telephone Hour. I did the Band of America. Uh, I did the show of shows with uh, Sid Caesar. And, so and you were in Copa. there for the early days of television. Oh, yes. Did you ever play in any of the radio orchestras? Well, the Bell Telephone Hour, which started out as a radio program and uh -huh. became... Uh, simulcast, both on radio and television. The same thing happened with the, with the Voice of Firestone, which started in 1928 and uh, had been on the air when I took the show it was in 1951. So it had been on the air for a good long time. So you did get to play in some of the radio bands that later evolved into the television oh, shows. Oh, sure. And, mm -hmm. and, and the re freelancing recordings, I mean, recording with Castellanos, you really look at the brass, woodwind, and string sections, you're looking pretty much at the same musicians you recorded with the day before with uh, BAM or with uh, Stokowski. You may have a different concertmaster, a different principal second, a different principal cello, or a different first flute, or, but, but the others are, are there. Most of the musicians I worked with on a freelance basis, I worked with every day. There was a small core of those in New York? They called them cliques, some people, but uh, I call them professionals. Harvey, as, as you tell your story, it's, it's really very much a story of your own efforts, uh, a little luck maybe here and there. But really part of it is, uh, is the teachers and the individuals that, that you've uh, been influenced by, uh, some perhaps more skilled or knowledgeable than others, <laughs> The first music teacher that I've seen mentioned in your uh, story is, is a Miss Harden. Miss Harden was my first high school band teacher. She's the one that said to me, Harvey, well, how would you like to play the bass horn? Oh, really? Yes. Now, did she know anything about the bass horn? No. She knew the thing. She had a fingering chart, uh -huh. which she had me copy because they didn't have copy machines in those days. And it was good for me to do that because I learned something. My earliest method book, actually, was a Methodist hymnal on our piano. And I would sit there for hours playing out of the hymnal. And uh, my mother would be back in the kitchen or the dining room, and she'd start singing along with me. Well, if I hit a clinker, she'd be in there in a, in a jiffy to tell me, that's not right, Harvey. 
Oh, this is something wrong with that. If I played something out of tune, she'd say, no, no, that's not right, Harvey. Now, if you were working on that, you really were focusing on, on instrumental music. I'm sorry, on vocal music, on, on music that people sang. Yes. Well, I noticed right away uh, in playing out of the hymnal that there were some words you had to treat very special, like the word God, for example. God could be all-forgiving. He could be an angry God. He could be a for, uh, uh, vengeful God. He could be a kind God, uh, depending on the lyrics. And even to this day, when I play something that has no lyrics, I put lyrics to it. Really? And not always the same lyrics, and I don't always share them with people. I, I find that it helps me get deeper in, into the music. And the next time, it, I may say, well, how can I make this more intense? Let me take it a little faster and uh, uh, stress different notes. It's like reading poetry. Uh, when you have no lyrics, if a poet had to get up and just make vocal sounds, they would learn right away the difference between fortissimo and pianissimo and mezzo forte and crescendo and diminuendo and stellarando and stringendo. They'd learn that right away. And uh, for me, I was trying to make the lyricism of music without words more lyrical and more communicative by putting words to it and expressing the words I was putting to it. We're talking with Harvey Phillips on Profiles. Harvey, the next teacher that, that you mentioned earlier was a person who had actually been a bandmaster, Homer Lee. How did he work with you? Miss Harden, I had only one year. The next year and for the rest of the years I was in high school, Homer Lee was the teacher. And he would take me to, to solo competitions to... You know, you had the district, you had the state, you had the national com competitions. And uh, my assignment, since I had no method book, would be to give me three or four circus parts to learn. And the circus parts for tuba are quite difficult. Uh, circus music is usually played very fast. And, uh, in fact, the only time we ever played Sousa was when something was threatening our audience, like a big storm or fire. In 1944, the Hartford Fire Circus burned up. And Merle turned with his cornet into the band and started playing da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Stars and Stripes of Sousa. And, and when, was, when did this occur? When there was something threatening the audience. I see. And this was to get the message to everybody on the circus. They knew the routine. Routine. They could tell what was on the center ring or the third ring or the second ring any time during the show by what music was being played. So to hear that music interrupted was something they knew to come and take care of business, that uh, those big center poles were being lifted off the ground, there was danger of the tent collapsing on the audience and so forth. So, But as far as the audience was concerned, it was just more music. It was a musical Hey Rube? Uh, kind of, perhaps. <laughs> you have to take into account also when we had a tragedy among our own, when one of the high-wire high people might fall and there might be one or two broken bodies in the ring, we would start playing 12th Street Rag 
and this would be a signal to all the clowns to come take the attention away of the audience, take it away from this tragedy, especially the children. So they'd come out in whatever state of costume they were in at the moment to take the audience's attention away. That's what Stefan Sondheim's uh, Send in the Clowns is all about. If you read the lyrics, you see, You in the air, me on the ground, where are the clowns? Send in the clowns. Because he knew when the clowns came, help was on its way. Now, that was with Merle Evans when you were with Ringling. And really, you'd, you'd, you'd been fortunate in some ways in having a, a circus bandmaster for a high school music teacher. Oh, yes. That, that uh, did me in very good stead because I knew quite a lot of the repertoire. Well, the, the first year I joined the Ringling Circus, we had 189 titles in our book. And it was about two and a half inches thick. Anything and everything... Boy, circus music certainly seems to have been really in in many ways just a wonderful preparation for the variety of music that you later went on with. You've mentioned that uh, that really in some ways rather than than having specific teachers because really you didn't work with people who who knew your instrument that to some degree you came up through the apprentice program. That's right. That's right. I was an apprentice always I think more of an apprentice than a student. In fact, when I started to the Juilliard School, and uh, I lived in Bill Bell's studio, mm-hmm. so I heard all the other players get their lessons. And uh, I would say in the four years I was a student of William Bell, mm-hmm. I had maybe six formal lessons with him where I would sit and play and he would critique. The rest of the time we played duets, we'd play studies together, we'd take a walk, we'd go out for dinner. Uh, But I really felt no matter what we were doing or where we were doing it, I was learning something. Now, you had really a variety of teachers and approaches. Uh, Then you come to Indiana University and and you're a regular faculty member with uh, a studio and 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 a load of students. How did you use some of the things that you'd been learning and the ways you'd been learning in this really more formal situation? Well, I taught a course in survival, for one thing. There are two ways to spell higher education, H-I-G-H-E-R and H-I-R-E. And so I tried to split the meaning of those two words Mm -hmm. with my students. I would tell them, for example, let's not learn excerpts from symphonies, from operas. Let's learn composers. Let's learn Verdi. Mm -hmm. Let's learn Wagner. Let's learn Mahler. Let's learn Stravinsky. Let's learn Mozart. Let's learn Haydn, and so on and so forth. Does this fit in with your idea of music being one, one language but with dialects? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we talk about Baroque music. We talk about classical music. Well, you're not going to sit down and play classical music as represented by Mozart the way you play Baroque music as represented by Bach Mm -hmm. or Handel. So you'd immerse a student uh, in in one particular sound for a while. That's right. And, you know, I, I tell them if you're sitting home by the phone and it rings and someone says to you, I'm not feeling well tonight, can you go in and cover me with the 21st Century Bebop Band with Dave Baker? If you have to say no, there's something missing in your education. If you have to say, 
uh, if someone calls you and says, I have a Dixieland gig tomorrow, can you can you do it for me? I, I have a, another gig that takes me out of town. If the person says, gee, well, I don't play that kind of music, that's the worst thing you can say. Your career just took a step back because you never know when that one phone call might come and it might be your entire future. You sound like the least snobbish of musicians, Harvey. Well, music is, as I say, it's a communicative art. It is an art. There's no question about it. But it's the most organized and the most definitive of arts. For example, the piano keyboard doesn't change. You've got 88 keys. They don't change. They're always there. They're always the same. In fact, I would adopt the position that all music ever written is in that keyboard. And some composers like my dear friend Alec Wilder or like Hoagy Carmichael would say, I know there's a song on that piano that no one has found. I've got to find it. And they would find it. Well, so many of my friends, my dearest friends, are composers, arrangers, orchestrators, because I sought them out. I'd hear something on the uh, FM station, on a jazz station or something, and I would seek out the person that wrote it. I remember... Manny Albam, who was a great jazz writer. I heard something of his on the air with Zoot Sams and uh, some other great jazz players. And uh, I met him in Jim and Andy's restaurant, bar and restaurant, a musician hangout. And so I introduced myself and I said, I really want to congratulate you on your work with uh, Zoot Sams and I said, and all the music I've heard of yours, I've never heard tuba. Do you, do you ever write for tuba? He said, no. He says, I've been tempted to with it from the Sauter Fennigan. He said, well, you're the Sauter Fennigan. I said, that's right. He said, well, I'd like to know more about it. So we went to his studio from the restaurant, and he sat down at the piano, and he would play something. He said, how would this sound on the tuba? So I try to imitate his inflection and, and play it in his style. So he thanked me. We spent about an hour and a half together, and he thanked me. And uh, I didn't think anything more about it until about two weeks later, I got called for a whole string of recording sessions. So I would show up and deal with the music, whatever it was. And that was very exciting for me. That was much more exciting than knowing for months that I'm going to play the Mahler uh, one of the Mahler symphonies. And I've got a whole year to get prepared, get ready for it. Well, when you walk into a studio and the you, music is there, you deal with it on the spot. And you have to deal with it stylistically, you have to deal with it musically, and you have to deal with it technically. And you also have to please the particular producer that you're working with. The composer Alec Wilder was a frequent guest in Harvey Phillips' home, Wilder wrote little pieces for each of Philip's children. Here's Harvey playing Wilder's Suite Number no. 3 for tuba and piano, the Little Harvey Suite with pianist Arthur Harris.
Our guest on Profiles, tuba virtuoso Harvey Phillips, playing Alec Wilder's Little Harvey Suite with pianist Arthur Harris. In, in addition to your career as a player, uh, you've always been credited with being uh, really very much a businessman. Uh, in addition to accolades about your playing, one commentator said that you, uh, you were the Lee Iacocca of the tuba. I, I think really this sort of shows, even when you were in high school, I mean, at 15, you joined the union. That's so right. you were ready to be a professional uh, player. And, you know, the union I joined was Local 22 in Sedalia, Missouri, the hometown of Scott Joplin, and the place where the Missouri State Fair takes place every year. So there was purpose in my madness. And I, I noticed that as part of your story, uh, when you left Ringling Brothers for William Bell and Juilliard, one of the things that you did was get a substitute for yourself. That's correct. So that uh, so that the the ensemble was able to continue, and uh, and nobody said, "Boy, that darned Harvey Phillips, he left us in a lurch." That's right. I was very careful about that always. And uh, you know, you talk about a businessman, or you talk about a teacher, you talk about a professional. They say the most important consideration is integrity. The second most important consideration is integrity. The third most consideration is integrity. And so you realize that without integrity, you're not going to have the reputation you espouse to have. So people can trust that, uh, that you will take care of your particular responsibilities. That's correct. Now, as your career in recordings and concerts in New York went on, you increasingly actually got into the business area not just uh, working for yourself, but also scheduling other musicians as well. Well, that, that sort of started uh, in 1956. Of course, one of the great symphony orchestras of the 20th century was the NBC Symphony Orchestra, organized for and by Arturo Toscanini. Toscanini passed away in 1956. I never played with the orchestra when Toscanini conducted, I was just not fortunate enough to ever play under Toscanini. When he passed away, a program was done in Madison Square Garden with a spotlight on the podium and no conductor. And the concertmaster, of course, gave cues, which you could hardly see from where I sat. But I was engaged to play that particular concert. NBC, once Toscanini had passed away, took the name away from the orchestra. So the orchestra, in, in a series of meetings, decided they would call themselves Symphony of the Air. And they would continue to do concerts, and, and it would become a self-governing orchestra. Well, they had a wonderful little violinist named Jesse Tryon, who was one of the first violinists in the orchestra, he became the contractor or personnel manager for the orchestra. That lasted for a couple of years, and uh, he didn't want to do it anymore because it was a challenge and it was a lot of work. So I was invited to a meeting of the orchestra because I was not a member of the orchestra at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, I was invited to a meeting and asked if I would consider being the personnel manager. Well, already every orchestra I had belonged to in New York, <laughs> I ended up 
as the chairman of the orchestra committee. I was the one who had to speak to the conductor about changes or speak to the management or speak to the union about increasing in scale. And successfully enough that people started coming to me because most musicians are scared to death of having that kind of responsibility. So you'd become a labor relations expert. Uh, well, of, uh, but look at this, too. I mean, uh, as a tuba player, you get a certain salary as a principal instrument. When I signed a contract with the Metropolitan Opera, I had written into my contract that my overscale would be the same as first oboe. Because other than the concertmaster and principal cellist, the major payment of overscale was to the first oboe player. So I figured, why should I have to negotiate that for myself? I let the oboe player negotiate the overscale, and I'll share it with him. So that's my way my contract read. Uh huh. And then you started to do more contracting uh, with the Symphony of the Air. Uh, I I did Symphony of the Air. Then I was a member of an orchestra organized by John Lewis of the Modern Jazz Quartet called Orchestra USA. And we did four recordings for Columbia. But the premise of uh, John Lewis's Orchestra USA was to have on each stand a jazz player and a classical player. Of course, there's only one tuba in the orchestra, so you had to do it both. But, for example, we had Charlie Russo, who was a leading clarinetist in New York, played first clarinet with the uh, Symphony of the Air, uh, and we had Phil Woods on the same stand, Phil being the great jazz player. Mm-hmm. Um, it must have been very interesting to participate in. It was indeed. And, of course, I was uh, vice president for business affairs for that orchestra and the contractor. I discovered very quickly that I had a good memory for numbers because I could sit down and hire a whole orchestra and not look in the phone book. That sounds like a wonderful ability. And I could make out a payroll with Social Security numbers and not have to look them up. And I knew how many deductions they had. And I knew their children's names. I knew their wife's name. I made it a point to have that kind of information. Now, sometimes when I've seen orchestras playing, uh, sometimes the tuba player gets a lot of time off. Not if he's in my chair, he doesn't. Oh, yeah? What does he do in your chair? Well, I might uh, sit in the in the ballet pit and make out half a payroll while I'm waiting for my part to come in uh, in the orchestra. Being a tuba player in an orchestra has its pluses that a lot of people don't consider sometimes. First of all, you're one of two solo instruments in the orchestra. The other is the harp. Every other instrument in the orchestra is in duplicity or more. So as a solo instrument, you bear a certain responsibility. You may not have a lot to play in a particular piece, but it's very important, and no one else is going to play it. No one else is going to determine what the blend and the balance will be except you. Then there's the matter of if you're playing in a symphony orchestra and they do a Beethoven cycle, you've got two weeks off because Beethoven didn't write for tuba. Uh He didn't have a tuba to write for. So there there are a lot of pluses with the minuses. 
As you continued uh, doing really business and, and working with people like Stakowski and Stravinsky and Gunther Schuller, you went to uh, the New England Conservatory not as, uh, as a tuba virtuoso but as the vice president for financial affairs. Well, that came about because Gunther Schuller and I had started a company a few years before that called 20th Century Innovations. And we produced a series of contemporary music concerts at Carnegie Hall, the like of which has never been done before or since. But other composers who wanted to have good performances of their works and good premieres knew the quality of musicians that we were getting with 20th Century Innovations. And in fact, Gunther made all the musical decisions as to what would be played. I made all the decisions about personnel. And of course, we talked to each other about both. And we both knew that if we didn't get a particular clarinet player, we couldn't play that particular piece. If we didn't get a certain trumpet player, we used to, I used to brag in New York about the depth of first trumpet players, the depth of first clarinet players, the depth of saxophone players, that we just had so many. I also bragged that while New York may be a city of 14 million people, greater New York, it was a city of 3,000 musicians. And that's a small town. So I tried to make it a point to know as much about the musicians, the 3,000 musicians, as I could learn and know about their background and what kind of music they played. And if they, if they weren't of the, of my mind that music is one language with a lot of dialects and they only played one dialect, that's all I could hire them for. If all they could play was Dixieland music, I couldn't hire them to play in a symphony. If all they played was symphonic music, I couldn't hire them to play in a Dixieland band. Mm Mm-hmm. So being a contractor and personnel manager carries with it a lot of decision-making and responsibility. I used to make out the schedule for 20th Century Innovations by calling each musician who was going to be on that concert and get his schedule. Then I would sit down and take all these schedules that overlapped and figure when rehearsals would be. And rehearsals might be from 5.45 to 7.15, not 10 to 1 and 2 to 5. And you say, well, if it's 10 to 1... Somebody tells you, well, I've got to record date that time. I can't, I can't do that rehearsal. You say, well, that's the only rehearsal we have for this piece. You've got to do it. And I can't. I've got a recording. It pays more money. So I learned very quickly that if I wanted certain musicians, I had to cater to their availability. And that took a lot of extra work, but it was worth it. After you had worked as vice president for financial affairs at the New England Conservatory, uh, um, you came to Indiana University, and I think uh, it really fits in with with the organizational and uh, and business acumen that you've showed. That uh, really, and also your your deep feeling for William Bell. That one of the first things you did was establish a William Bell scholarship. That's right. And then after that, you began planning the first international tuba symposium. Yes, and that took place in uh, May of uh, 1973. Also, that fall in 1973, we had the first Oktoberfest. The next year, in 74, I put together the first International Brass Symposium in Montreux, Switzerland. 
That same year, I started tuba Christmas concerts, which this year will be include over 200 cities throughout the world. Um, in 1970, the, the 1974 symposium was such a success, I was asked to do a brass congress by the School for Advanced Musical Studies in Switzerland to do a brass congress in 1976. Well, I knew that the trumpets were not organized. We had the International Horn Society, the International Trombone Association, and Tubus Universal Brotherhood Association, but they had no organization. So I decided they should have an international trumpet guild. And I called to my house Charles Gorham, who was chairman of the brass department and a wonderful trumpet virtuoso and teacher at IU, and Robert Nagel, who had worked with me in the New York Brass Quintet for many years, and I gave them the charter of bylaws and, and uh, constitution of the Horn Society, the Trombone Association, the TUBA, and asked them if they would organize the Trumpet Guild because it wouldn't look right if I did it. And then I suggested that they study the uh, bylaws and constitution of each of the organizations and prepare one for the trumpets that would make it most amenable to working with the other organizations. So once I had that underway, we planned the first International Trumpet Guild meeting for June of 75, so that in 76 we could have the first International Brass Congress. Gee whiz. We've been talking with Harvey Phillips, uh, astute organizer, businessman, uh, master teacher, Paganini of the tuba, about uh, his career, about some of the things he's done, and about uh, his continuing involvement with the tuba. For Profiles, I'm George Walker. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in the studios of WFIU in October of 2003. Christina Kuzmich, producer. The recording engineer and editor was Michael Paskash, Luann Johnson, research assistant. Information about this and other programs can be obtained at 812-855-1357. Profiles programs can also be accessed through our website at wfiu.indiana.edu. For WFIU, thanks for listening.